99.7 WTN. It is the Matt Murphy Show. Just getting underway, really. It's 12.35. You know, I promised giving you a breakdown. I forgot. I've got a guest. John Harris is coming up with the Tennessee Farms Association. But uh, I, I promise I will give you that breakdown on Joe Biden, uh, the leak that was through the Pentagon, who uh, it is believed leaked all of that information and what the response has been from uh, Joe Biden's uh, the Pentagon, the State Department, etc. We'll do that coming up in just a couple of minutes. Wanted to get the reaction from the Tennessee Firearms Association to the suggestion by the governor's office that potentially uh, we might have an opportunity to pass some sort of, uh, what do they call them, new orders of protection, calling for the passage of what is essentially a red flag law in the state of Tennessee. To speak to this matter, uh, John Harris joins us yet again on the Murphy Show Hotline from the Tennessee Firearms Association. And it's always a pleasure to talk with John. John, good afternoon. Hope you're well. Doing fine yourself. I'm doing well. I enjoyed your op-ed that I read on the Tennessee Stars website. I encourage people to go read it themselves, uh, where you make comment on this, and it's one of the reasons I was inspired to speak with you about it. John, I, I, uh, I don't like to assume that I know where people are on this, but I'm pretty sure I know where you are on this. Uh, but for those who don't know, I want to back up first. Uh, what are traditionally defined as red flag laws? A red flag law, in in common definition, is a type of law where the focus is placed on removing access to a thing, such as a firearm, from someone who uh, arguably poses a risk of harm to themselves or a third person. So... Talk to me a little about how this jives, I mean, how this can jive. And we've we've had states that have passed these things. How do they pass constitutional muster, considering that the Second Amendment is pretty clear about all of this? That's a, that's a great question. There, there are, depending on how you review each state's law, between 19 and 22 states that have some form of law that you would classify as a red flag law. Almost all of those were enacted prior to the United States Supreme Court's decision last June in the, what we commonly refer to as the Bruin decision. And, and so what was happening before Bruin is that the courts were using a constitutional scrutiny standard that said, first, is the activity, you know, possession of a firearm covered by the Second Amendment, if they answer that in the negative, then they didn't go any further, and they said the state could regulate the activity. If it was answered in the affirmative, the, then the second question became, well, does the state have a, a good reason, good cause for regulation, such as uh, the default that states normally went running to would be public safety. And what happened in Bruin last year is the United States Supreme Court said, to the lower-level appellate courts across the nation, guys, y'all have really messed this up. Uh, there is no two-part test that is constitutionally permissible. The question and the test has to be if the activity is covered by the scope of the Second Amendment, possession of arms, then the government is prohibited by the Second Amendment from regulating that activity unless the government can show that a similar regulation existed amongst more than one state as of 1791. So how does that jive with these, what are being called orders of protection? It doesn't seem like they would. 
Constitution. No, they won't at all. In fact, post-Bruin in November of 2022, a federal district court in the Fifth Circuit out towards Texas struck down the provision in the Gun Control Act from 68 that said an individual who has an order of protection issued against them is commits a crime, essentially, by possessing a firearm or buying a firearm. The court struck that down and said, now under Bruin, that's unconstitutional. In December of 2022, a New York State court, looking at the Bruin case, declared unconstitutional New York's red flag law. So uh, before we get too far away from it and and dig a little deeper into the government, uh, the governor's recommendation, I want to start here. Uh, Do you have he, he did two things. He called on two things. One, he called on the General Assembly to pass what he uh, as you wrote in your in your op-ed he avoided calling red flag laws but that's what they are um but he also signed executive order 100 do you do you have any concern about executive order 100 which is my understanding would require the tbi to update um any new criminal history or mental health information in a more timely fashion to the database do you have an issue with that the the timeliness issue uh uh, is 72 hours is what's in his order, and I don't really have heartache with that. I think in most circumstances, the courts and the agencies that are required to submit this information are probably responding that fast or faster already. There is a little concern because his executive order used some language that wasn't precise when it talks about reporting not only criminal records but orders pertaining to mental health. And there are some classes of mental health orders uh, that fall under the involuntary committal process that do not impact an individual's ability to purchase or possess firearms. And if he's including those orders, which are not public records, they're private confidential records, even though they're from a court, then I think he's overreached if those are being included. Okay, that makes sense because I I read it and I and I lean on your expert knowledge with regard to the law on this. I read it and I didn't get concerned about it because if if, if the focus is on demanding of the government agency that they do what they already have been doing in a timely fashion, I'm fine with that. Uh, it, it's the other piece that causes me concern because, you know, speaking generally, uh, we all can agree that we don't have people with significant or serious. Well, I don't want to presume. Do we agree that people with significant or serious mental issues that potentially would cause them to be a danger to others or themselves, can we lawfully preclude them from legally owning a firearm, John? You know, that, that is a, a question that I think is going to take some guidance from the, from the federal courts under Bruin because of the fact that the 6-3 majority in Bruin said the law has to exist. First, it says that the category of problem, if it existed in 1791 or before, then the court has to look at, was there a law interfering with the Second Amendment rights that was the solution or the remedy in 1791? And clearly, uh, what research I've done so far says that as of 1791, if you had a person with a mental health issue that posed an immediate risk of harm to themselves or others, They didn't send the sheriff out and take his guns away and then ride off in the sunset and leave the guy there to, you know, get a stick of dynamite. 
they detained the person and stuck them in a facility or an asylum where they were observable and taken out of public circulation. And so there's going to be a serious question, even on this, what I think most people would agree is a need for intervention as, as to what that permissible intervention is. I want to back up for a second because I don't know that I've asked you this question, John. Do you believe that do you believe in the concept and the legality of background checks more generally? The, 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 I think in general, there, there were categories of people as of 1791 that, that could not lawfully possess arms. I mean, for example, they would typically say that, you know, Native Americans couldn't possess arms. Slaves couldn't possess arms. And so the, the, the suitability of a background check of sorts I think may well be uh, a type of law that would pass constitutional scrutiny. I think the bigger issue is what's the scope of the check? Are they looking for issues that are now impermissible for uh, asserting that a person no longer has the right to possess a firearm? Like, for example, the Fifth Circuit's recent decision that said orders of protection can no longer be enforced as a prohibition on someone's right to purchase or possess a firearm. I know that in your op-ed you also expressed concern that, you know, while this is a worthy discussion to have, particularly when it is instructional to individuals in positions of political power with regard to the Bruin decision, uh, which sadly I, I don't know that I don't know that the Bruin decision was taken under consideration at all based on the governor's comments. Would you agree with that? Oh, no, I would I would strongly agree with that. In fact, I have had certain legislators report back to me that there are um, legislators in leadership who have asserted and continue to assert that the Bruin decision has no relevance at all to the state of Tennessee. Well, why in the world would they say that? It's a it's a Supreme Court decision. Absolutely it is, yeah. And and in fact, it's the basis on which our current Attorney General has already conceded uh, in the Beeler decision, which just came down in March, that Tennessee violated the Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights of individuals concerning the 18 and up age bracket, and that that violation constituted a federal civil rights violation. Uh, there's another uh, Middle Tennessee appellate court in, uh, on a case coming out of Columbia, Murray County, that specifically made its decision based on Bruin, and it is astounding to me that we have members of the General Assembly that neither know what Bruin says, nor do they, if they know what it says, assert that it is irrelevant to their authority as state legislators. Well, and I understand that there's a lot of emotion in the aftermath of such a tragedy, an evil tragedy like Covenant, and there is a, an extreme desire in our state to, quote, do something. And the governor expressed that, that he wanted to be able to rush laws that, quote, remove individuals who are a threat to themselves or to our society to remove them from access to weapons. And I and, and I think that the difficulty in re removing rights hinges on whether or not that individual has posed a threat, a real threat to other individuals, or if we are trying to precognitively determine that that threat exists because when you get into the arena of precognition that's a very dangerous place to be with regard to our laws when it comes to the second amendment john 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and we do have a law that, that in many respects, I think, passes constitutional muster, and those are the statutes that we've had for many years under Title 33, which is the Mental Health Code, that says if, based upon medical evaluation, and all this happens very quickly, within a matter of hours, a determination is made that an individual, as a result of mental or emotional health circumstances, poses an imminent risk of harm to themselves or to others, that that individual can, by court order, be uh, placed into a mental health facility or hospital for evaluation and treatment for up to two weeks, which clearly takes them out of the access to firearms category. Uh, and then at that period of time, the person has a, a right to an evidentiary hearing with expert medical proof and a right to have an attorney defend them at the cost of the state to determine if they are a mental health risk and if they should be uh, continued under court-ordered or mandated mental health uh, supervision. You know, it sounds to me like the laws already exist to potentially prevent some of these tragedies from happening. It's a matter of uh, people around these individuals that are seen to be uh, in, a, in a mentally unstable state uh, to try to get them the help that they need Based on what you're saying, if they were to do that and it was to be diagnosed by a mental health professional that they are indeed a danger to themselves or others, that the laws are already there to preclude them from being able to obtain any sort of weapons, guns included, uh, that could harm other people. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the, the mental health statutes that are already on the books right. go so far as to say that if they are determined or if they're adjudicated as mentally defective as part of the process, then notice has to be given to the state agencies to put them on the do not buy list, basically. And then uh, and another piece that I wanted to get to before we have to go, the um, you, you were concerned, and I am too, that there's not more focus on giving... Uh, these places where people congregate, particularly churches and schools, et cetera, uh, more of an ability to um, to defend themselves in the case that an assailant might try to do them harm, especially when it comes to teachers in the state of Tennessee being able to arm themselves voluntarily. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in fact, we've uh, published on our website a letter that Bill Lee sent to TFA in 2018 when he was candidate Lee for governor and he expressly assured our organization that he had a number of second amendment relevant things that he would do one of which was to pass and sign legislation five years ago that would have authorized uh, school employees to if they chose to do so be able to carry on campus well i'm concerned about that too and hopefully we'll be able to talk to the governor very soon and get his take on where he stands today and i'm appreciative of you posting the 2018 letter so we know where he was then if we are to believe the letter and i have no doubt that he was he was speaking truthfully then maybe something's changed now let's let's try to find out from the governor's office where he is on on that front John, do you find it, uh, this is more of a personal question, as we've talked these many months that I've been in the state of Tennessee, I'm curious, I mean, is, is it especially difficult, and I know you try to separate the legal from the emotional, but in the aftermath of this, people are very emotional and they want to do something. They don't know what, 
but people talk about gun control, people talk about mental health issues. They and and you are a voice of reason when it comes to the law and what individuals are legally allowed to do versus the you know, frankly, there is um we are not a perfect society and in a, in a society that values liberty beyond security, there are always going to be cracks that evil people can slip through, sadly. Uh, you try to protect those cracks as much as you can. You try to give people the ability to protect themselves as much as they can. But, uh, you know, folks don't want to face that reality that freedom is valued beyond security in the United States. I mean, do you find it hard to talk about these types of things during these times? It is difficult, and it's, you know, because I do recognize that there are advocates that are genuine, but they're responding predominantly from a um, position of emotional priority as opposed to a sound understanding of what are their constitutionally permissible options. And so it's, it's sort of the example of the Venn diagram. Uh, the Constitution says these are your permissible options that you must may select from, and once the emotion enters the formula, they don't look at the diagram at all. They just rush to a solution, and unfortunately, it's frequently an emotional solution that's the uh, principled targets of the gun control movement itself. Well, and and that's why with red flag laws, you see they're focused on getting the guns off the street and away from anybody for any reason, as opposed to getting mental health treatment for the individual. John, always good to catch up with you and lean on your legal expertise in these matters. I appreciate the Tennessee Firearms Association, and we'll talk again very soon. Thank you so much.